You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. And it's a, it's a psalm that talks about the bigness of God. You heard it. That not willing to negotiate with a God that is bigger than we can imagine. Um, just think about that for a second, because when you put it in the perspective of if God is that big, what am I willing to stand up against God to do? Because God asks us to do things. Um, he, he invites us to do things. And so when we, when we look at that passage out of Mark chapter 9, where um, a father brings a son that is just in torment, and this is... This is what it says. It is often thrown him, and Jesus is asking the question. The father responds, from childhood, this this child has had this issue. He's often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, said, if you can... All things are possible to him who believes. And this is where it kind of takes a switch. It kind of turns in this passage. And he says, immediately the boy's father cried out. And, and I'm guessing this is where we are. Because it's a place to start a year because we, we want to be in a different place than we were at the beginning of last year. My guess is that all of us in this room want to be further along in our walk with Christ than we were January 1, 2019. And so the the phrase, the father comes back and he says, immediately the boy's father cried out and says, I do believe. That's good. And then he goes on and says, help my unbelief. When you you think about that, you just go, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. I do believe, but help my unbelief. What that, what that tells me is a father understands that, that he sees Jesus for who he is, but there's a part of him that is still struggling on the inside. That, that there's still room for, for that man's faith to grow. And I would say every one of us is in a place where our faith can grow. We, we have not arrived. Would you agree with that? And so if God is calling us to a bigger faith than what we have, why would we want to even negotiate with a God who's bigger than we can imagine? And so we need to take steps of faith. Um, we had the chance to go out of town last week for, for the second of our three Christmases. And um, it, it was a good time. We were down in Georgia, met with some folks, um, got to catch up with with Cody, who had been here before, and, and I'm glad that Isaiah was able to step in and preach last week. I've heard great things about that, and I'm so thankful that, that there are times when I can walk away from the pulpit here, and whether it's go to Georgia or Florida or wherever, um, vacation or a, an emergency, be able to step away, and, and guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah can step into this place and preach the Word of God, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but it's, it's not that I have to be in this spot all the time. In fact, it is more beneficial for us as a church family if that is shared a little bit. 
because it's different perspectives. And so that's good. And I'm thankful for that. But while we were gone, we met up with a guy that I served on staff with in Atlanta in my very first church. Um, it was back in, um, it, it was, this goes back to before some of you were born, pretty sure this whole section, um, uh, Back in 1987, I went on staff at, at that church, and um, I'd been saved about seven years, went on staff. There was transition in pastorates and, and ended up serving under this guy who, who came and was there for several years. And uh, we got to be close with him and close with his wife. And so we stopped on our way through Atlanta the other day and got to catch up with them a little bit. Hadn't seen him in a bunch of years, and he was just telling us what was going on. Um, in his life and in their life and, and what they had been through. And um, it, was a, it was an interesting conversation because there were pieces of the information he gave us that I was not aware of. And see, we left there right at the beginning of 1991, moved to New Orleans and started the finishing of um, a seminary degree. So um, when we left, things were just kind of rolling along. The Minister of Music left about the same time. And, um, and Larry and Nancy were there. He was pastor and had been there for several years. And um, about five years after that, there was an episode that took place in the Atlanta area um, within probably three quarters of a mile, maybe probably even less than that from where you guys were who went to Passion. Um, it, was, it was in the, the Olympic Park downtown Atlanta. And in 1996, if you remember, there was a, a situation where a bomb threat was called in and a bomb actually went off in the park. I don't know if you... I, I don't know. I may be just tired. Um, but a bomb went off in the park and, and killed somebody and, and the, there was a call into the police about a package and the, the call happened um, in, in time-wise in, in close proximity to when they saw the package and, and all that. And the guy who called it in, his name was Richard Jewell. Now, you, now you're starting to catch some of the story because that's a movie that's out, right? And so I don't know. How many of you have seen the movie? All right. That's a vast number of you. Um, I only count one hand. Um, but Richard, Richard Jewell was a security officer and, and was working that particular area. And he's the one that discovered it. And, and subsequent to him discovering it, um, he basically got accused of planting the bomb. And so he went from security to the accused. And the public opinion in the, in the Atlanta area just went crazy because um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution jumped on board and, and began accusing. The FBI thought he was a prime suspect and just kind of went down this road of accusing Richard Jewell of planting the bomb, making the call and planting the bomb. And there was an Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter that actually stepped off and timed the distance between the phone um, and where that bomb was and decided and it kind of figured through, through logic that you couldn't make that call and do this all at the same time. There was more time needed to make that trek. That trek was, um, as the, the um, reporter 
checked it, it was about five minutes, but that was without the traffic of Olympic traffic. So probably closer to seven or eight, ten minutes uh, between the phone and that place. Well, Richard Jewell, for the next two and a half months or so, was um, scrutinized, and essentially this was described as a living hell for that particular family. You may say, man, that's, that's pretty harsh. Well, the, the thing that I found out was, and I did not know this, is that Richard Jewell is the son of a lady that worked in the preschool. That held Stephen. And, and it just made his life tough. They, they tore him up publicly. After the Journal-Constitution reporter, and I, I'm sorry for, for tearing up. I, I have no idea why. <laughs> it's January 5th. I don't know. Um, I always tear up on January 5th. Uh, the... Um, but the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter um, did that, and they checked it. And, and, um, but in that interim time, just made life really tough. Well, Larry was the pastor of the church while the mom, Bobby, was at the church. And, and Bobby actually held Stephen and, as he was a baby there. And so there's some connection. And what we learned from Larry is that it, it took a long time for Richard Jewell to be cleared. Although the DA let go of the charges or let go of the investigation of him shortly into it, it wasn't until 2005 that he was actually exonerated with the confession of the actual bomber. How do you get to a place of that? Richard Jewell has passed away. He passed away at the age of 44. And, um, and Larry and a couple other guys were actually the, the pastors who did the service in Atlanta. And so, uh, you know, we kind of learned these things as we were sitting with them for dinner. And, and I didn't know much of the story. I'd just seen the, the movie clips. But, but you kind of wonder, how do you get to a place where the perception just kind of rises up to a point where a decision is made and things are pursued that are just kind of off? I mean, there's, there's lots of things that we could look at. And just the perception and, and even all that, how do you get to that spot? And I think it's, it's due to our worldview. Worldview is nothing but a, a, an idea or the way we operate based out of our perception experience, maybe an opinion, could be a bias. Uh, all those things play into what a worldview is. And so if the worldview in that particular case was, hey, let's look at this guy and let's take him down this road, then, then all of us are kind of subject to a worldview that can be skewed and, and be off-center. And this is a good time of year to, to look at worldview because a worldview is nothing but a particular philosophy of life or a conception or perception of the world around us. Jesus entered humanity in the flesh. And what did he do with the worldview of the Pharisees? He kind of blew it apart, didn't he? He came into their world and, and not just turned their world upside down. You would, you would say he kind of pushed them to the edge and maybe even over the edge. That's what Jesus did. And so when we talk about our worldview, getting it from family or education or experience or opinions... Um, we have to decide, where do we get our worldview? And then based on that, how do we make the decisions that we make? 
because your worldview is important. And, and I believe, and, and I hope you would agree with me, that when we take our worldview and we run it through the filter of Scripture, then we get a better picture of what God has intended for us. And so that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning. Our, our worldview is the lens or the filter by which your life is shaped during this next year. And it only makes sense that as we start talking about 2020 and all the puns that go with vision and 2020 and clarity, and I see that, all those kind of things, that we get a good grasp on what God has in mind for us moving forward. See, Paul writes this. And it's a, it's a really short phrase. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he writes this, Pray without ceasing. And, and I know that you've been in Bible studies in different places when you talk about pray without ceasing. And, and you think about that, you go, wait a minute, I can't drive and pray at the same time. You can pray with your eyes open, it's okay. Now, I would suggest that, um, well, never mind, I'll just leave that alone. So if we are going to continue to go to God who is bigger than we can imagine, the one that we can take all our fears and our issues to, if we're going to do that and we're going to look at this and say, okay, God, I'm going to pray without ceasing. My, I'm going to have this attitude of prayer. We have to understand that God is big enough to handle every, anything and everything that we bring to Him. And anything that that we may be going through, God can take care of. And in, in light of all the things that Paul could have written in this passage in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, why does he write, pray without ceasing? There are a lot of things that he said to the Thessalon Thessalonian church, and that's certainly one of them, but it's such an important piece of this. Now, it's sandwiched in a, in a couple of different things. It's sandwiched among this idea of giving thanks and um, as, as part of that. It's also sandwiched in between um, the phrase rejoice always. And so that's part of what Paul writes. But, but why does Paul write pray without ceasing? Why does he think that's a, a big deal? Because when we pray, it changes our perception. It changes our perception of God. It also puts us in a place where we understand who we are in light of how big God is. And so for us to pray is really important. Why do we do that? And, and so what I want to do is I want to examine that for a few minutes this morning. Um, and I want to ask that you would consider doing a couple of things. I'm going to tell you up front. And, um, and what I want to ask you to do is that as you're praying, going through the service and your ears and your hearts are open, say, God, what do you want me to do? Because if this service just ends with, hey, it's good to pray and I'm good with that. I'm glad church is over. Let me go get a burger and I'll, and I'll be good with the rest of my week and the rest of my year. I've got my resolutions and they're all written and I'm done. Then we've missed out on what God may have for us. So I'm going to ask you to step out of the I've already got this figured out part into a place where, God, I'm open to whatever you want. And so I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. Participate in prayer and fasting, a prayer and fasting initiative for the 21 days beginning this week. Now you say, oh, wait, I can't fast. I can't, I can't not have food. 
Their food is a piece of that, but it can be other things. You can fast from social media. You can fast from all kinds of things. I would suggest that you don't fast if you're young and your parents want you to clean your room. Fasting from cleaning your room when you're asked is not a good option. And there are other things. You don't want to fast from saying I love you to the ones that you care about. That may not be a good fast. But there are other things that you could fast. And so the, the idea is that you step away from something of importance to you and focus on what God is doing. And that's the idea of the fast. Now, we can look through Scripture, and, and certainly there's this stepping away from food because that is, a, that is something that we feel like we need. But when you step away from it, you kind of put, you put God in the place of that food and say, God, I need you more than I need the food that I normally take during this hour. And so I would say, if you can fast physically from food, then I would say that. But I would say, if, there's, if there are issues with health, be very careful with that. And I'll give you a resource to look through um, for later on. So that's the first thing, participate in prayer and fasting for the next 21 days. And then the second thing is be a regular participant in active prayer for our community through two possible connected channels. Um, there is a website, and um, I'll repeat this later on. It's called Bless Every Home. Bless Every Home, when you sign up for it, identifies, or as you give them information, it identifies where you live, which you go, okay, it can find you on a map, which is not real hard, but it does that. But then it gives you the names of those that live around you so that you can pray for them. It gives you a place where you can even write notes. And so I would encourage you to go to blesseveryhome.com to register for that and then begin praying for the neighborhood around you. And then also we're going to be engaging in another neighborhood kind of prayer thing over the next several months where we're going to be very specific about going into neighborhoods and just prayer walking. Now, we may have some things to hang on the door and say, we prayed for you today, but it's really meant to be a um, non-intrusive way of getting into the community and letting people know that we love them and are praying for them. And then just let's see what God does with that. And we'll talk more about that as we get there, but I want to ask you to start considering a commitment to that. And so the question would be, if prayer and worldview are in our scope this morning, what is the connection between them? See, our belief in God and our belief about God constitutes our worldview. So your prayer life is an indicator of your worldview. A.W. Tozier wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't know if you'd agree with that. But if you were to consider God in light of your life and, and all that you go through, what you think about Him and how you respond to Him, how you react to Him, how you hear Him, how you speak to Him, it makes a difference. God has afforded us access to Himself through the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a way that is unique and powerful. So prayer has, has this great potential we often walk by the potential. Ian e. Bounds said this, Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, 
a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. When you think about that, just going to God in prayer and say, God, I love you and I want you to teach me. Prayer is a privilege that we have and it's essential to living out the Christian life. Martin Luther wrote this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so if I asked you this morning, how many of you are alive? Some of you, because you're Baptist, would still not raise your hand. But if I asked you how, how many of you are alive, the majority of you would, would raise your hand. Say, yeah, I'm, I'm alive. And then I would say, how many of you are Christian? And I'm not talking about being in a nation that, you know, well, we're not so much a nation that's considered a Christian nation at this point. But, but in general, if I asked you, how many of you are Christian? You may raise your hand. But then if I asked, how many of you pray regularly? How many of you have as a normal part of your life prayer? How important is it? Then, then the hands may start to go down. Because prayer is a struggle. It, it's hard. You, you realize, and I had a conversation with a lady, just stopped by, and Deb and I had a devotion that morning, and it was all about loving in, in, um, in situations that happened to come up, and this lady came up, and I was in the middle of something. And she came to the door, and I answered the door of the church. Nobody was here. It was a little late in the afternoon, and with all the holidays and everything, and she came to the door and began to tell me this story. And I'm like, okay. And we went outside, and it was a little bit chilly, and her story got longer. But it was, it was one of those things, and I told Deb, I said, I will be home when I get home, but I had a love interruption today. Because somebody stopped by and just expressed need and said, I, I, need to, I want somebody to pray with me. And her story was pretty incredible. I don't know about incredible in a great way, but in, incredible. And she shared that story, and it was... It was a time where you said, okay, God, what are you doing here? Prayer is important. And sometimes we struggle in getting to the place where, where we pray and think it's important. So you can produce a litany of things that compete for your time, thought, and treasure. But if we're going to be different at the end of 2020 than we are today, then we need to adjust our starting place. Our starting point. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we go to God. And so what is prayer? Now we're we're going to mark this down very simply. The first part of this is its connection to God. Its connection to God. When Jesus gave instruction of to his disciples about praying and how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he began with a hinged set of ideas. In the very first phrases of that, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what do we know about that just from that prayer as he's teaching? Well, we know God is in heaven. We know God is big. We have no problem with the idea that God is really big. And he's amazing and he's, he's the creator He's forever worthy of worship. But if you stop there, you can make God a distant reality for your life. You can keep God at arm's length and make him way over there. And when you pray or when you think about praying, he tends to be outside the room. 
Like your prayers only go to the ceiling of this place and they never reach any further than that. You keep God at a distance. That could be one view. And, but, but that's not what Matthew 6 is talking about. Matthew 6 is really talking about a God who is there and almighty and worthy of worship. But it's also talking about God as Father. And that brings it all to the, to the personal part of us. See, when God is distant, that's one thing. When God is close, it's another thing. And Jesus hinges these two things together when he's teaching the disciples. He said, it's important for you to know that God is God, but it's also important to know that God is personal to you. And so it's a connection to God. We must see this. And, and Jesus even understood this principle that God is there, but he's here as he walked away from the disciples on occasion to pray. In Luke 5, 16, in Matthew 6, 14, 20, or Matthew 14, 23. The second thing, not only is it a connection to God, but it's a conversation or communication with God. We may see prayer as talking to God, and, and a lot of times that's where we end up. We say, let's pray, and then we just continue to talk. You, you've been around folks that say, let's have a conversation, and you don't get a word in. Please don't yell at names. But you may be, you, you have experienced that. Well, what if you're God and God says, hey, I want you to talk to me. And then I'm going to talk to you, but, but all the talking goes one way. Or, or maybe it's that, that and you may, may understand this too, is you're in a conversation with somebody and every time you begin to talk, they start a conversation from their side before you finish your sentence. It's kind of talk right over what you're saying. And you go, man, that, that is frustrating. Deb and I have that conversation because every once in a while, I'll do it to her. She'll be talking and I'll say, and I'll just start into whatever the next thing is that I was thinking about instead of listening. You may be in, have been in that situation or know that. Please, you know, if you're going to nudge your, your spouse at this point, don't make it obvious, all right? But, but we, we do that. And when we start talking about communication and conversation with God, talking over is not a good idea because God is bigger than we can imagine. There is a part at which we share to God, yes. But there is another part at which we need to be still and allow God to speak to us. That's prayer. Prayer does not mean that we do all the talking. Prayer means that we talk and we listen. So we could be like David, and if you look in Psalm 64 or Psalm 69, David, if you look at those, and there are others, other examples in Scripture where David just kind of complains out his heart and shares with God what's going on in his life. He says, I mean, I hate this. These guys are chasing me, and I'm frustrated. Where are you, God? And in the same psalm, and it's really interesting how quickly it turns, in the same place, there's this idea that God is God, and he's still in charge, and I can trust him. And I would say we find that throughout Scripture, where you see the complaint of people, the, this heart-wrenching sharing with God who what is going on in, in life, and you've been in that spot 
where you've gone to God and said, God, I don't understand why I'm going through this, and it really ticks me off that I'm in the middle of this. And then you turn around and realize that God is God. God's not absent from that situation, nor does he not understand. He understands very well. To pray unceasingly reminds us of who God is and how much he cares for us. Jesus prayed. Let me give you some examples you can jot down very quickly. Prior to the selection of the disciples at the graveside of Lazarus in John chapter 11, I mean, you remember that prayer was just, God, you need to be seen here. Upon entering entering Jerusalem in John 12, 27, 28, because he recognizes that this people is is a group of sheep without a shepherd. There's no protection from evil there. In Gethsemane in Matthew 26. I mean, there's all kinds of examples of Jesus praying. And so what do you pray for? And let me, I'm just going to give you three things you can pray for, and it's not an exhaustive list. So if you say, hey, wait a minute, there's others, go ahead and add to the list. Feel free. First one is that we pray for extraordinary displays of God's power or the move of God. Matthew 17, 21. Second thing, for enlightenment. And I, and I don't want you to be scared of that word. It's asking God to reveal the hidden things of God. You, know, you realize that so much when we look at Scripture that there are pieces of who God is and what He does and why He does what He does that are going to be a mystery. Not everything is spelled out in black and white. And so we ask God, God, help me to understand this. And if he doesn't do it, we learn to live with that because we trust God. But we can pray for that. We can pray for enlightenment, that God reveals the hidden things to us. Third thing is extension of influence. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus said, pray for the workers, didn't he? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So maybe we need to pray for the extension of influence. See, that, that goes right along with Psalm 2.8. It says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God asks us to pray. And we can talk about prayer. We can even believe in prayer, but not pray. We might not believe it changes things. Have you ever been in a spot where you go, I've prayed, but nothing has changed? And so you get frustrated and say, God, why? Uh, If I'm going to pray and you're going to ask me to pray and I step into that and I'm trying to be faithful on my end, why in the world don't you answer it? Why in the world don't you fix this for me? I don't have an answer for all those questions that surround that God is still God and God is sovereign but I do know that prayer changes us and God invites us to participate in that and and even in that I think I think when we bend the ear of God it changes a lot of things here's an example in Acts 
12, starting at verse 5, and I'm, I'm going to read verse 5 and then skip a section. In verse 5, so it's talking about Peter. Herod put Peter in prison, and so Peter was kept in the prison, verse 5, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So far, so good, right? Peter's in prison, church is praying. I don't know what they're praying. I'm assuming that they're praying that, that the one who put him in prison would let him go and let him out. I would, that's my assumption. And so God does a miraculous work in the, in, the, in the verses that follow that. And Peter's released. And this is what it says in verse 12. Acts 12, 12 says this. And when he realized this, that he was freed and got out. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark where many had gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And this is one of the, the, the funniest stories in Scripture. So this servant girl comes to the door, and when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And he said, well, what's so funny about that? She didn't let him in. He's a, he's a fugitive. The least she could do is let him in the gate, right? She doesn't. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. So, so they're fervently praying that Peter gets released. Peter gets released, comes to the door. Rhoda says, he's here. And they're like, you're crazy. We've been praying, but that ain't going to happen. It's like praying for rain and not bringing an umbrella. You know, if you're going to pray for Peter to get out, at least believe when he's out that he's out. But they're saying, it's an angel. They said there, you are out of your mind. And, and then in verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. And then Peter, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them, how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and to the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Prayer matters. We may not even believe that it matters that much, but it matters. It's us going to God and saying, God, what do you want to do? First John 1 John 5.14 says this, This is the confidence with which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That word confidence is, uh, means to be free or have a fearless confidence. It's a cheerful courage, boldness, or assurance. That's what it means. So we can have this confidence. It's the idea that I'm not walking into this going, I hope he hears me. It's walking in saying, I know he hears me. Comes from a connection with God. And that goes back to the verse right before that. And we quote it all the time when we're sharing Christ. These things I have written that you may believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So it, it's predicated on us having a relationship with God and then turning around and going to God in confidence, knowing that He hears exactly what we pray. 
So in the middle of this verse, there's something that can easily get lost. And it's the word invitation. You say, well, well, I don't see it. I don't see this invitation. But if you look at it, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That, that to me, sounds like an invitation to come before his throne and ask. He invites us into his presence. God invites us into his presence. God invites you into his presence. That's a big deal. And then it says, he hears us. It means to give audience. It essentially means that he bends low to give us his ear so that he can hear us. You've been around children and you bend low to hear them. You get on that eye contact level with them so you can hear them and clearly what they're saying. That's what God does to us. Is he bends low to, to do that. How many of you have been to a fast food restaurant, gone through the drive-thru, and you, as you're speaking to them, and they're trying to repeat back the things that you've asked on your special order, that they can't seem to get it right? God always hears well. It doesn't get messed up between the speaker in the back and the window at the, in the front. God hears well. And so there are three takeaways for us this morning. The first one, in weakness, declare God's ability. In weakness, declare God's ability. See, where you don't have the power to act, God does. And when you don't know what to pray, God understands. This is what it says in Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the, what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Secondly, in humility, proclaim God's authority. In humility, proclaim God's authority. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. God cares. But it means that we have to humble ourselves and go to Him. We can't go to Him and say, God, I, I got this taken care of. I'm just coming to you because somebody told me to. Now, it means we humble ourselves under his hand and his sovereignty. Third thing, in practice, treasure God's assurance. You could, you could kind of contain all three of these things in these phrases. God has the power, God is in charge, and God will answer. God has the power, God is in charge, and God will answer. And so prayer is important. If fasting is going to be part of that, and it's a way for us to focus our attention on God, and if you desire to see God move in your life and around you, then we have to understand that no crisis, that, God, that there is no crisis for which God is too small. So you can't bring something of magnitude to God and say, God, you're not big enough to handle this. 
God is plenty big enough to handle any situation. And then there is nothing so small that it does not concern God. So then if we look at that and say, if that's true, if there's no circumstance too big for him and no circumstance too small for him to care about, then praying without ceasing makes sense. It means that we can take anything that we have to him. So what's our next step? First thing is, is just in the title. First thing is, is fasting. It's essentially being desperate for God, bending your ear toward God and your heart toward God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he says, fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. So it's just a concentration on God, a focus on God. So what would you be willing to give up so that you could focus on God? Um, I told you I would tell you a place to go look, and here you can write this down. It's desiringgod.org, and you may not agree with everything that that website will tell you with regards to Reformed theology and all kinds of stuff, but the, the section on fasting is worth looking at as an idea of what to do to fast. And so it's um, desiringgod.org, and it's in the articles, and it says, Fasting for Beginners. It's kind of like fasting for dummies. You know what I mean? It's, it's a good place to start because it reminds us of some principles of Scripture, but also some principles on how to deal with things. Like after that third day of not eating, how irritable are you? That kind of stuff. Second thing, not just the fasting part, but the prayer part. So privately set a time and a place. The other part of that is to maybe keep a journal or use prayer cards to keep you on track would be a way to do that. Then the blesseveryhome.com app that you can use. So let me ask you this. With, with all this in front of us, what are you willing to do? And you could just kind of fill in. I think it's on your paper. It says, I can slash will. What will you do? What's going to be the thing that you're going to do in response to a call to fast and pray? That's what I want you to do is I want you to take just a moment right now, about 15, 20 seconds, and I want you to write down what you will do. Is a call to fair prayer and fasting is a call to action. Lisa Turkhurst said this. So the reality is my prayers don't change God. But I am convinced prayer changes me. Praying boldly boots me out of the stale place of religious habit into authentic connection with God Himself. So it changes us. We go before a holy God that is bigger than we can imagine. Bigger than we thought He was. It changes us. Corey Tenboom said this, or asked this question, is prayer your steering wheel 
or your spare tire? Well, get practical, will you? How important is prayer to you? I want us to pray for just a moment. And then I I want to to remind us that, um, that if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it may be that your prayers are really only just getting to the ceiling. And that's as far as they go. Because as you remember, that prayer means a connection to God. It's that God Almighty and the, our Father. And if you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to that this morning. To say, God, I can't save myself. I know that I'm a sinner, but I can't fix the problem of separation between me and you because you're holy and I'm not. And I know that was fixed by Jesus on the cross. That he shed his blood for me and offers forgiveness for every person that trusts him. See, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if you don't have that relationship, I would invite you to come. For others of us, as we fill in that I can and I will, we're going to need God's strength to move forward in prayer. And so I may, I'm going to ask that you may even come to the front, to the altar, and, and kneel before God, humble yourself, and kneel before God and say, God, I'm surrendering this morning to praying for this year, to being open to what you have for me, knowing that you're a big God. And so the altar will be open. Others of you may want to join our fellowship here and serve from this place to make a difference in the world around you. And we invite you to come and and join us as part of the family of Ebenezer. So let's pray, and then as God leads you, you come. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.